Uh, I'll be reading the scripture this morning. It's going to be Romans 8, verses 1 through 13. My name is Jason Espy. I serve as an elder here. All right, verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verse five, for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit for the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. Verse 12. So then, brethren... We are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the word of the Lord, and may he bless its reading. Thank you, Jason. Well, obviously, I'm not Pastor Byron. My sleeves are down and I have a jacket on. I'm not Pastor Murray either. I don't have that wonderful accent that he had. I could literally have listened to that man all day long. Um, Not gifted like that. Uh, My name is Bobby. I actually go to church here. (laughs) So some of you probably see me wandering around the halls from time to time. Um, I want to kind of jump in where Pastor Murray left off. Uh, uh, I feel like there are some things that, that could be said right there at the end. And so hopefully over the next two weeks, we can address some of those things. I want to start this morning just by reading uh, something to you. Uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, 
in the pursuit of happiness. Y'all have heard those words before, yeah? Sure you have. These are some of the most famous words from the Declaration of Independence. And here in just a couple of days, most people in this great country are going to be celebrating Independence Day. There's going to be barbecues and parades and fairs and carnivals and uh, all sorts of stuff like that. Some people are going to go to baseball games. All of this in celebration of freedom. We're going to reflect on that freedom, hopefully. Hopefully we'll spend some time reflecting on the men and the women who gave all, who shed blood, who gave their fortunes to secure and establish a free republic. And we understand that securing this freedom in this great country came at a great price. Men and women had to share their blood, right? And we also understand to maintain that freedom that there's a cost there as well. Men and women still shed their blood to make sure that we can maintain the freedoms that we enjoy here. America, since her birth, has been entrenched in war. Have you ever sat down and just thought about it? How much war America has seen? I did that as I was preparing for this message. We started with the Revolutionary War, 1775 to 1783. Then there was the War of 1812, which lasted from 1812 to 1815. There's the Mexican-American War, 1846 to 1848. The American Civil War, 1861 to 1865. The Spanish-American War, 1898. World War I, 1914 to 1918. World War II, 1939 to 1945. The Korean War... 1950 to 53, the Vietnam War, 59 to 75, then we have the Gulf War, the war in Afghanistan, the Iraqi War, and then we have lots of other campaigns that continue even to this day. America has been entrenched in war from her conception. She has had to fight to secure the freedoms that we enjoy, and she has to fight to maintain those freedoms. I'm not endeavoring to engage in a political message this morning. That's not the purpose here. Like I said, I hope to follow uh, a little bit in Pastor Murray's shoes. But believers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, find themselves in a very similar situation. Our freedom has been purchased at a great price, at the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our liberties, our joy, our peace, the abundant life that Pastor Murray has been preaching about for the past month is also under constant assault. There is a war that is constantly being raged. There is a war that is happening. There is an enemy on the outside that is waging war. We know that. We know that Satan himself is coming against the church with all of the evil that he can muster to destroy God's people and somehow hurt God. We know that the world system, which is in the hands of the enemy right now, has been manipulated and fashioned in such a way that it is hostile toward God's people. 
But I want you to understand something. The greatest enemy we face is the enemy within. It's not the culture. It's not the lack of morality. It's not the educational system. It's not television and media. It's none of those things. It's the enemy within. Pogo once said, we have met the enemy, and he is us. James 1, 14 through 15 says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Paul says in Galatians 5.17 that the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. The big idea that I want to convey this morning which, by the way, all of this morning is basically going to be just one long introduction. Uh, and so we'll have a lot more to talk about next week. I think there are some thoughts that we'll share this morning that will be very helpful for you. But we'll, we'll put the rubber to the road next week and make some real practical applications about the things we're going to talk about. But the big idea is this. Kill sin or it will kill you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for your grace, for your rescuing of us, for the freedom that we have. Lord, that we are not in bondage, enslaved to sin anymore. That we are not under obligation to the flesh. That it doesn't control us. Lord, but we are free. We are free to follow you, free to choose you, free to obey you, free to live in you, to experience the abundant life that you want us to have. We also know, Lord, that you left us here. You left us to contend with the sin that exists in our flesh until the day that you come. That there are daily battles that we must face and that we must win for the good of those around us and for your glory. Lord, I pray out of great weakness that through this message somehow you would impart truth to your people that would help them to be more of what they're supposed to be. Give glory for your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to start with one idea. We have three that I want to share with you this morning. Uh, all answering the question, how can I kill sin in my life? And again, we're going to make uh, more of a practical application next week. We're going to go to some very basic, some very fundamental things. I'm going to remind you of some things that maybe you have forgotten. Very basic things that are going to be extremely helpful for you. But this morning, I just want to touch on three thoughts that I think will get you on the road that you need to be on. Number one, how do I kill sin in my life? Remember your obligation. Remember your obligation. Again, look at verse 12 there in chapter 8. It says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, 
to live according to the flesh. Because of Christ, you are free. Because he sent his Holy Spirit to find you in the world, to touch your dead spirit and to bring you to life, and to pass on all the glories of his riches, to pass on to you all of the mercies and the graces that he has for you. Because of him and the work of the Spirit in your life, you are alive. You are free. You've been deceived. Many of you have been. At times, I've been deceived. That's how I know. That's how I can look at you and point at you and say, you've been deceived at times. To believe that you're not free. The enemy lies to you. The flesh lies to you. Your circumstances come against you to lie to you. To convince you that you're not. That you're still enslaved to sin. That you're still under obligation to the flesh to obey its lust. But you're not. You've been made free. Paul begins uh, this chapter, uh, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no more condemnation. You have been freed. You have been rescued from the penalty of sin. That's exactly what this verse is indicating. There's the penalty that is due, you're free from. You have also been freed from the power of sin. We are still in the presence of sin. And that's where the delusion comes. But Paul goes on to talk here in the rest of chapter 8 about all of these wonderful experiences we have because of the Spirit. We are in this no condemnation status because of His Spirit. He frees us from sin and death. He enables us to fulfill God's law, verses 2 and 3. Verse 4, He changes our nature so that we don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 5, we're not minding the things of the flesh, but the things of the Spirit. We have the power to do that now. We're not headed for death, but for life and peace, according to verse 6. We're no longer hostile to God, and we no longer displease God, all because of what verse 9 says. However, you're not in flesh, but in spirit, if indeed, and you could better translate that, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. So it's all because the Spirit has come to take up residence in our heart and in our life that we experience all of these wonderful Blessings. Verse 11, he continues, we've been raised from the dead. And then we come to verse 12 and 13, we see where the power lies for us to live victoriously over sin. It's not in the flesh. We're not under obligation to the flesh anymore. He says, so then, brethren, we're under obligation but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And then he makes this axiomatic statement. He says, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So it's just kind of an obvious, self-evident truth that he makes there. If you're living according to the flesh, you will experience Death. If you're living according to the Spirit, you will experience life. Here's another truth, and the reason that Paul dives into this whole discussion that we see marked out here in chapter 8 
is because of all the things that he discusses previously, especially here in chapter 7. He indicates in chapter 7 that there's this incredible, intense war that's happening inside of a human being that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are free. We have been freed by the Lord Jesus Christ, but we still live in this flesh. We are incarcerated in the flesh, which contains sin. It's in our DNA. We can't escape the presence of sin until we can escape these bodies. And this flesh is constantly trying to reclaim dominance over us. It does not want to let us go. It's not in its nature just to give up and to quit. It wants to reclaim what's been taken. It wants to exercise dominance over our life. And so we have the enemy without, but then we also have this great enemy within that is constantly assaulting the liberties, the peace, the joy, the freedoms that we just read that we have. The abundant life that Pastor Murray talked about for a whole month. The the abundant life that the Lord Jesus Christ says he wants us to have. These things are constantly under assault. And if you could remove yourself from the world, if you could place yourself in a desert environment completely away from people, and you were isolated from the world, from media, from all of the external influences, guess what? The war that Paul describes in chapter 7 would still rage on. We are incarcerated in unredeemed humanness, which Paul calls flesh. And that flesh is warring against our souls. First Peter 2.11 again, read at the beginning, but it says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. So what are Peter and Paul... And the other authors referring to when they reference the flesh in this way. The flesh is just this awful bag of just sinful desire, sinful motives, sinful affection, sinful principles, sinful purposes. All of it that exists, it's innate in your flesh. It's in your DNA. You were born with it. You walk around with it. It's in your limbs. It's in your eyes. It's in your hair. It's in your mind. You can't escape it. It's in your DNA. Your flesh is evil. There is nothing good at all that exists in it. Nothing. Paul says, as he's referencing this battle, in chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. He goes on to say in verse 21, I find in a principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Where's the evil at, Paul? What are you saying? Where do you find this evil at? It's in my flesh. It's in my DNA. 
I can't escape it. Verse 23, I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. But then, like I said, he ushers into what we call chapter 8, the rest of this wonderful information. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Yes, you're incarcerated in the flesh. Your humanness is wrapped all around the new man. You have new desires. You have a strong, strong desire to serve and to please your new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the flesh is resisting you at every single step. You can't escape it. You can't get away from it. But you're not obligated to serve it anymore. Not like you used to be. Before, you didn't have a choice. You didn't even know that there was a difference. The two of you were were so united that you looked as one. You were one with your flesh. But the Lord Jesus Christ has created a new inner man that is separate, distinct from the flesh that you're incarcerated in. The old man has died, and we are free from obligation to the flesh. And Paul actually paints just a beautiful illustration of this at the beginning of chapter 1. So just look over there just briefly. Verses 1 through 4, he says, Do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised, was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God." You're not under obligation to the flesh anymore. Your old husband is dead. You've been free to serve your new husband. You are under obligation to him. And again, I know that this is very basic. This isn't new information for you. But that doesn't mean it's not helpful to remember it. We need to remember That we are under obligation to our new husband. And men, when you go out to work every day, when you go off to play every day, you remember that you're under obligation to your mate. You don't forget that on a daily basis. You walk out that door, you look at that ring, and you remember that you're tied to somebody else and that you have obligations to that person. That's all we're saying here. Remember that you are tied eternally to the Lord Jesus Christ. You have obligations to Him. You don't have the right to sneak around behind His back and cheat on Him. You're under obligation to Him, to be faithful to Him. Just remember that. Again, simple But it's a thought that will help you when temptation comes. I don't have a right to do that. I'm under obligation 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember whose you are and that your obligation is to him. That's thought number one. Thought number two, look at 13, the first portion of verse 13 there in chapter 8. It says, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. Again, an axiomatic statement, it's self-evident. If you're living in the flesh, you can expect death. That's what you can expect. What you need to recognize when temptation comes, when sin knocks at the door and threatens your freedoms, your liberties, your peace, your joy, is that there are always horrific consequences for sin. Always. Horrific consequences for sin that you can't even see. Sin always takes you further than you want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay. And it costs you far more than you ever planned on spending. Always. At the camp that I work at, we have an activity that we do with our kids. uh, Part of our low ropes challenge course. It's called the spider's web. And basically it's just a tree here. A tree about over there, and in between, we've tied a bunch of string together to create openings about yay big around. And there's three levels of these openings, kind of all mixed up, different shapes. We call it the spider's web because it looks like a spider's web. And then we, we present a challenge to the kids. We tell them that, you know, the challenge is for them to get their entire group from one side through the spider's web to the other side. And what we typically do is we let the kids set all of the parameters, all of the boundaries, all of the rules for this game, except for one. And I tell them at the end, when they've set all the rules that they want to set, I get to set the last one. The goal of the game is for the kids to fail. That's cruel, isn't it? (laughs) I don't want them to make it through the spider's web. Uh, The string that we used is black, which in Scripture is indicative of sin. What I hope to teach them through it is that no matter what parameters they come up with, no matter how they reorient their thinking, no matter what approach they take to this thing, there are always going to be unforeseen consequences They're going to forbid you from experiencing the life that you want to experience. And so every time I let them reset, they'll come up with new rules, and then I'll change just one. Just one that I know will prevent them from succeeding. Sin always has unexpected, horrific consequences. I think of Achan... When I think of that, I got many of you Bible experts in here well familiar with Joshua chapter 7. Um, he's a character that's found there. You know, after Israel was ushered into the land of Canaan, the very first battle that they had was with the city of Jericho, you remember? And God had given them instruction that they were supposed to march around the city a certain number of times. And on the last day, they were supposed to march around certain times. And they were supposed to yell. And then the walls were going to fall down. And, yay, there's going to be a great victory. You remember that? 
That was the very first success that Israel had, the very first city they come to, a well-fortified city, a huge city uh, back in those days. And they found great success. They did exactly what God had told them to do. The walls came tumbling down, and they went marching in. I mean, we learned the songs in, when we're little bitty kids, right? They found great success. But God had told them something before they went into the city. that He told them not to take anything. He said that the city was under a ban, that there were certain things that were going to be holy unto God, and that they weren't to take these things. Well, after the walls had come down, uh, Achan was one of these soldiers that uh, was part of that uh, march around the walls. He goes in, and he sees things that he covets. He sees things that his heart desires. And so he takes these things. I don't know how he hides them and how he gets them back to camp, but he takes these things and he goes back to camp and he hides them in his tent. Well, the rest of the camp, you know, they're all excited. They don't know anything about Achan's sin. They're just all excited. They've seen God's promises come to fruition and they know that the entire land of Canaan lies before them and that now no enemy is going to be able to stand before them. The greatest of the enemies that the land of Canaan can throw at them are going to be demolished because God is with them. So they set their sights on the next closest city, which is Ai, which is a much smaller city. In fact, it's a wee little itty-bitty city, right? It's, it's nothing. In fact, when Joshua sends the spies up to this city to kind of search it out, they come back and they're like, man, Joshua, this thing is no sweat. Don't even worry with the army. Just send a few guys. We'll go up there. We'll take care of it. All it's going to take is just a couple thousand guys. We don't need much. Joshua's like, well, sweet. See you home for dinner. They march on up. And what happens? The little itty-bitty city of Ai spanks the army of Israel and sends them home crying. Killing 36 of their men, as the scripture tells us. They come back. This is right on the heels of a tremendous victory. Everybody is just swept up in the emotion and just in, in the thrill of God's for us. And they come back defeated. And Joshua falls on his face before God and just weeps like a baby. Crying, begging God for an answer. What on earth is going on? And God picks Joshua up, tells him to stand on his feet, and informs him that there is sin in the camp and that he needs to search it out. So if you'll just turn over to the book of Joshua for just a minute, I just want to point this out for you. I want you to see it. Joshua chapter 7. I just want to read verses 16 through 26. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the family of Judah near, and he took the family of the Zerahites, and he brought the family of the Zerahites near man by man, and Zabdi was taken. He brought his household near man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord. The God of Israel and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, truly, 
I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and took them, and behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. Behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. They took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel, and they poured them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his sheep, his donkeys, his tent, all that belonged to him, and they brought them up to the valley of Acre. Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised up a great heap of stones, and it stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of the place has been called the Valley of Acre to this day. Do you think, you think for a minute that when Achan coveted, those things, knowing that they were under the ban, and he decided, I'm just going to take them. I'm going to enjoy them in the privacy of my home and in my life. I'm going to keep it from everybody else. Nobody else will see. I'll just enjoy it in the privacy of my tent. You think he thought for a minute that his family would die because of that? That 36 other men in the camp, would have to die for his sin? You think that ever crossed his mind? I'm telling you, sin has horrific, unforeseen consequences. You can't possibly reason it out and know how it will impact you, how it will impact your family, how it will impact our church. In our community. The little thing that you do in private at home that God's told you not to do has consequences that you can't even begin to reason out. Sometimes those consequences are borne out in our bodies. Scripture tells us that we reap what we sow. If we have a rebellious spirit, if we're critical and we're angry all the time, we can see the marks of that on our faces. If we're grumbling, complaining, and just have an ungrateful attitude, we can see marks of that uh, in our digestive system. If we're an alcoholic, we can see the effects of that in our liver. If we're sexually immoral, we can see that in the diseases that we pick up and in the emotional instability that we live out. Our character bears the consequences of sin. Every choice that we make hardens our heart. It weakens our conscience. It damages our integrity. And it is evidenced in our life. You cannot hide your sin. Your sin will find you out. It found out David, King David, when he lusted after Bathsheba. And he decided to commit adultery with her. 
He had to cover that up with murder. But through that relationship, that adulterous moment, a child was conceived. The penalty for David's sin, he thought, was just that he would lose that child. Isn't that what he thought? I mean, he he mourned and he wept and he prayed. And then when the child died, he got up and he said, well, it's all done. The Lord's exercised his judgment. The penalty's been paid. But it wasn't. That wasn't the only place that it was paid. David's character reflect the sin that was in his heart. He can't hide it. The things that you think, the things that you feel, those things that you're practicing inwardly, they work themselves out. They impact the people around you in your character. And David's character, in spite of the fact that he was a man after God's own heart, impacted his family. David's family was one of the worst families in all Scripture. He had a son that lusted after his half-sister and decided to rape her. Then his brother, in vengeance, plotted to murder him. And then that son was eventually killed when he tried to usurp the throne of David. You think David's character at this moment in time, this decision on David's part, didn't overflow into his family and affect them in these tragic ways. I can tell you from my own personal experience, I'm forgiven, I'm redeemed, I've done terrible things with my life and the decisions that I've made that have impacted my children. God's forgiven me. Three of my children are following the Lord, but one of them is not. And some of the legitimate reasons that he has for not doing that is the example that I set for him. It impacts those that you love in ways that you cannot reason out. So thought number two that I think will help you kill the sin in your life is recognize that sin always has tragic, horrific, unforeseen consequences in time and in eternity. All right, and then the last thought we'll cover quickly. How do I kill the sin in my life? You have to be ruthless with it. You have to be ruthless. We pamper our sins. We don't treat them the way that God would have us treat them. We need to put them to death by the Spirit, but we need to treat sin in our life with a ruthless savagery that is shocking. There's an illustration of the kind of mentality that we need to adopt in the Old Testament. If you'll turn over to 1 Samuel 15, I'll just show you some things there. 1 Samuel chapter 15. I think this will help you. It has helped me a lot. 
verses 1 through 3. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel. How he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. What is God asking Saul to do? He is asking Saul to eradicate an entire people group. Women, men, children, animals, infants. Go eradicate an entire people. I was teaching Sunday school years ago. And this passage came up. And one of the ladies that was in our class, this was a shocking moment for her. This was a shocking side of God. That she couldn't deal with. She didn't. She had young children. She just didn't know how to deal with it. How could God ask Saul to do this? And she was in tears in class. And then after class, I mean, just unloaded. She didn't know how to reason this out. How to reconcile this with the other things that she knew and understood about God. God is loving. God is good. God is merciful. God is gracious. But God is holy. So it's a hard passage to process. And we don't have time to deal with all of the the details there. There are things I just want us to see here. I want to give you a little context to begin with. So the Amalekites were descendants of Esau, according to Genesis 36. And they inhabited the southern part of Canaan. They were long-time enemies of Jews that kept coming up in the life of the Jews, causing problems for them. Uh, they had viciously attacked Israel uh, just shortly after the Exodus uh, there at Rephidim. And this is where the great battle happened where Aaron and Hur had to hold up Moses' hands so that they could win the battle. Whenever his hands fell, then they would lose, but whenever they were raised... They, would, they were winning the battle. This battle came about because of the Amalekites, because the Amalekites came behind them from the rear and slaughtered the pregnant women, the children, the elderly, the handicapped, and the sick, those that were struggling to keep up, the stragglers. And so they were an incredibly dishonorable people, uh, to ambush Israel the way that they did. God saw this as a grotesque sin. And God supernaturally delivered Israel that day, but swore to Moses, Exodus, Exodus seventeen fourteen, I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven because of that grotesque sin. In fact, God was so serious about it that he made this part of the Mosaic law. <laughs> He told Israel, as part of the law, it was their responsibility to make sure to remember to kill Amalek, to kill off that people group. 
So Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. I'll just turn over that real quick because I think it's important to see that as well. Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. Again, this is part of the Mosaic Law. God says, remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your ear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget to do this. It's part of the law. So the Malachites were due to die. Judgment had been prescribed for them. They were treacherous, deadly. They delighted in violence. They were extremely intimidating because of who and what they were. Kind of reminds me of an elementary school bully, Jimmy Flanagan. I forgive you for what you did to me. But... Their very presence in the land of Canaan was one of the reasons that Israel balked at going in the first time. Their intimidating presence is one of the reasons that Israel turned away and said, I don't think so. They were scared to death of them. So, at this time, God determines it's time to go ahead and carry out his execution on this people group. So Samuel says to Saul, carry it out. Saul says, I'll get it done. Look at verses 4 to 9 of chapter 15 there in 1 Samuel. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to a city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and... The best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Saul did not obey the Lord. What did he do? He followed his fleshly lust. He saw something he desired. He says, this stuff's worthless. I don't care to get rid of that. That's fine. But I really like that, so I'm going to keep that. The Lord said not to. The Lord said utterly destroy. The Lord said eradicate, but I really kind of like that, and I think that'll be okay. So I'm going to bring that back with me. So he kept the best of the animals and the possessions, and he spared Agag. So willfully disobeying the Lord. And just so you know, partial obedience is not obedience. It's rebellion. Partial obedience is not obedience. It is rebellion. Let 
in your rebellion will find you out. Look at verses 10 through 14. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret, I regret that I've made you king. For he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning and met Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? If you did what God told you to do, how come I'm hearing these things in the background? God said eradicate, obliterate. Don't leave anything left behind. Get rid of it. It's hazardous. Destroy it. Well, I just kept just a little bit. I did most of it. I killed most of the people. All I did was keep Agag and a bunch of the good animals and stuff. What's the big deal? God was so serious that immediately he deposed Saul. Verse 23 says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Serious consequence that Saul did not see coming. Samuel steps in to fulfill the commandment of the Lord and do the thing that Saul would not do to kill Agag. Look at verse 32. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death has passed. I mean, some time had rolled on. He's been kept in the closet back here as kind of a trophy for Saul. You know, I got this great big bad king of the Malachites. He's my trophy. I'm just going to keep him back here in the closet. I'll show him to my friends when they come by. And so sometimes come by and he thinks, well, surely, you know, the bitterness of death has passed. The war's over, da 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 All's good. But Samuel said, verse 33, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And look at that. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. This is a gruesome scene. Samuel picks up a sword and he hacks a man to pieces. No mercy, no compassion, just ruthless savagery. Hacks him to pieces there at Gilgal before the Lord. Well, you would think that this would do the trick. Again, time had passed. By the time that um, Samuel had showed up, there had been a little bit of time that had passed. The Amalekites weren't completely wiped out. There were other Amalekites still around because Saul did not do his job. They reappear in the time of David, chapter 30. Just turn over there quickly. I promise we're almost at the end. 
In chapter 30, you see that um, the Amalekites make a raid on the Nagi, verses 1 through uh, 3 there. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziglag. On the third day that the Malachites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziglag and had overthrown Ziglag and burned it with fire and they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive by the Amalekites. So they're still around. And still wreaking havoc. David's crushed. His men are crushed. Scripture tells us that they just fell down. They've lost their families. They don't know what's happened to them. They don't know what the Amalekites are doing with them. They know those people. And those men just, they, they fall down and they weep and they weep and they weep. The scripture says until there was no strength left in them to weep anymore. And then David says, well, we're going to go after him. And so David tries his hand at obliterating the Malachites. Look at verses 16 and 17. When he had brought him down, David found a slave that led him to where the Malachites were hiding. He said, when he brought them down there, behold, they were spread over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all of the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. Except for what? How many did you kill? Did you kill all of them, David? You got them all. Tell me you got them all, David. No, there's just 400 of them. Just 400 of them got away. It'll be all right. 400 of them escaped. Five centuries later, one of them appears in a Gagite, directly related to Agag. We see him in the book of Esther. You want to guess who he is? His name is Haman. And he's plotting the destruction of the Jews. This story illustrates for us the need to ruthlessly deal with sin in our life. You can't allow it to hang around. You can't be disobedient and allow it to blossom in your life. You can't allow it to have freedoms and liberties just to kill most of it, save the best of it, put the trophies in the closet You can't afford to bury it under your tent. To live a double life. Of one person out in front of the rest of the camp and another person in my tent knowing that I've got sin buried underneath of it. Sin has to be obliterated. It has to be defeated utterly. It has to be hacked to pieces. If you do not hack it to pieces, it will revive. It will continue. It's going to show up. It's going to come back and it's going to plunder your heart over and over and over and over again. Sin is subtle. It's powerful. It hides. It lies dormant. There are times you don't see it around. 
you think all it's good. But if you don't kill it completely, it comes back stronger the next time. More destructive the next time. The Jews were almost wiped out that close because this sin wasn't dealt with the first time. You have to deal with sin. You have to kill the sin in your life. So I gave you three thoughts this morning. Number one, recognize your obligation. Number two, recognize that there are horrific consequences. And number three, ruthlessly put it to death. Deal with it ruthlessly. Like I said, I'll make uh, some practical applications from the Scripture next week. I'll give you some more things to actually help you put the rubber to the road so that you can do this. You're not going to want to miss next week. I promise you it will be helpful for you. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for our time, for the truth of your word. Lord, we desire what we want to be, that enemy that remains within us, sin that you desire for us to deal with so that we can live a sanctified, holy life before you is a threat to the abundant life that you want us to have in the here and now. Lord, help us to receive the truth from this morning you'd have us to receive so that we can deal with it properly. In Jesus' name, amen.